This is Let's Talk Tribe, the official Let's Go Tribe podcast, episode 67, recorded on April 10th, 2017. I am your host, Matt Lyons, managing manager of Let's Go Tribe. And on this week's episode, we've got games, we've got Grand Slams, we've got Carlos Santana in right field, we've got Jaros Nelson, host of Southside Sox, here to preview the upcoming series against the White Sox, and we've got a total lack of unreasonable reactions because it was a three-game series. Come on, people, don't be crazy. Uh, joining me to talk about all of this and some more is not none other than Jason Lucart. Jason, how you doing? I'm good. I think more than just about any opening day, I've been looking forward to this one. I think the combination of the brutal Game 7 loss and wanting to get something to sort of get that taste out of the mouth, and then also the feeling the Indians could make it back to the World Series this year, so a lot of anticipation. I'm delighted to have some real baseball back. Yeah, I mean, the last time it was this kind of run, I guess it, I wouldn't count 2013, maybe not. But, like, 2007, after that, wasn't everybody pretty sure that things weren't going to go great in 2008? So I can't remember, like, an opening that we're all this excited about at once. Well, I could be wrong. Yeah, but. for me, the big difference is, like, 2008, I wasn't really, like, participating in baseball on the internet. I was reading a bunch of stuff, but I wasn't, like, interacting with people, and I wasn't reading, like, non-national writer stuff. So I don't really, I didn't have a sense of what any other Indians fans thought, because I don't know any other Indians fans. So this is the first time I have been part of the hype. Yeah, I, I definitely feel the same way, and I, I hate, sort of hate you for giving me this and making me <laughs> want baseball so bad over the offseason. Because before, I could just sort of tune it out and, oh, well, who cares? There's no baseball. But now, I, I like every second of the offseason, I wanted more because I had to write about it and look at it, and it was fun. But also, damn you, Jason. How could you? So let's go try it's like a boat. The two best days, the days you get it and the day you get rid of it. <laughs> so let's talk about some games. Uh, the Indians, they did really good. Then they were did not so good. Um, there was, of course, that, that huge grand slam that Francisco Lindor hit in the first series. And then just a whole bunch of bad in the Arizona series. Uh, lots of, I think, overreactions in the positive in the first three games and in the negative in the next three. So. Let's just sort of point out some, uh, we'll pick out some good and things, bad, good and bad things from each game. I think enough people watch the games, they know generally what happened and what went wrong in the Arizona series and what went so right in the Texas series. Um, but the first thing I want to talk about, I swear, again, I wrote this in my recap, it's not just because I want to keep promoting the Yandi hype, but he was pretty good. And um, I mean, his glove was better than I think Tito advertised in spring training. I still think that it was just a case of he wanted the young player to hear that he needs to work so he would work. Um, and the most, most interesting thing about Yandi is that he's hit the ball really hard uh, from Kevin Dean on Twitter at KVNBSBL, which is basically Kevin Baseball without the vowels. Uh, he said, StatCast has nine Diaz batted balls, recorded 95.8 exit velocity, league average is 88, uh, but a negative 0.97 launch angle, and the average is 11.4. Even if you don't know a whole about launch angles, I think you can guess that a negative 0.971 is bad, so... He's clearly hitting the ball hard. He's just not elevating at all. And he's just been a really interesting player to watch. And more than just a fan of prospects and more than just a fan of Yandy Diaz in general. I think he's been really fun to watch so far. Like you said, his defense to me has been better than I expected. You know, small sample and all that, of course. But, yeah, he's made some really nice plays. Um, he's looked pretty natural out there to me. Uh, offensively, for as big as he is, I wonder – if we're going to see more power at some point. I know he's had a lot of extra base hits in the minors, but not a ton of home runs. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, he's he's certainly been well worth his, uh, you know, spot in the roster for now. The batting line's 
week for now, but uh, yeah, he, he's been good. And to the extent that I've been anti Yandy Diaz at all, it isn't that I am down on him. I just feel like it's a little weird for like fans of the defending American League champions to be that worked up with the prospect. Like it was fun looking forward to Lindor because Indians sucked when we were looking forward to him for a while. We can have um, both. I'm excited about current yeah, Indians yeah, and also Yandy Diaz's giant biceps. Hey, let's not forget to talk about Corey Kluber a little bit because he's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. But does he have the biceps though, Jason? I don't think he does. <laughs> no, but that's, I mean, for those biceps, I think you have to admit, like, there ought to be a little more oh, over yeah, the wall power from those biceps. <laughs> I did not, like, he, like you said, he was never a big home run hitter in the minors. He never really had power at all until last year when he started hitting doubles and stuff. So I don't know what he's doing with all that muscle. I wonder if he's just always had a problem hitting the ball too low. Maybe if he follows everybody else's path and, like, just hits it up in the air, they're going to go places, but. That is a big man not hitting the ball the ball very hard, which is kind of disappointing. But, you know, maybe he'll – I don't know. Like, I don't know how long he's been that, like, stacked with muscle. Like, maybe the muscle's sort of new and he hasn't, like, worked his game into the muscle yet. I don't know. It, yeah. I think it's also kind of the – I guess almost cliche that he grew into his body. Because he's already 26, so you can't say that like you could about Lindor and – about they're saying, like, Tristan McKenzie now that he's going to grow into his body. He is fully into his body now, so maybe he's just not yeah. fully, like, used to wielding that much total power. <laughs> so what did you observe in the first few games? Good or bad? Uh, well, to, to balance the positivity about him, I would say the one player who the first week to me meant maybe, like, a little bit more uh, was Michael Brantley. You know, they, they've played six games. Most of these guys have had, like, 25 plate appearances. Middle of the season, you don't even notice 25 plate appearances. Like, you have no idea how most of the guys did in their last 25 plate appearances. But, of course, the beginning of the year, it gets more attention than it should. But in Brantley's case, just because he was basically out all of last year, uh, he's the guy that I kind of was keeping a closer eye on. And I got to say, I've been pretty disappointed in how Brantley has looked so far. He looked overwhelmed in multiple at-bats to me. Um, you know, he, he picked up a few hits. I don't know, four or five hits. But all singles. Um, you know, there's plenty of time and all that. But I, I just feel like for our first real game look, uh, I was hoping to see him looking a little bit more like 2014, 2015 Brantley than he has so far. Yeah, I think you tweeted something like Michael Brantley is back, but he's not back in all capital letters. Like he does not yeah. look like the Michael Brantley that was like a year or two ago. Well, two years ago, obviously. But but yeah, I mean, just in terms of, of course, really small sample size again. But he's already swinging and missing seventy seven percent of the times, which is something he never did. Like his previous high was his rookie season at sixty percent. So hopefully that'll go down. But that's like the only big thing he's doing is he's swinging and missing now, which he's never done in the past. So that is definitely worrying yeah. to see. Yeah. So I mean, you know, like. Edwin Carnacion hasn't been fantastic, but I'm not worried about it. Jose Ramirez is batting like 180 right now, but I'm not worried about it. Uh, and it's, it's not that I'm worried about Brantley, um, but it's, it's for me, it just feels different watching him right now, kind of trying to get a sense of what the Indians might really have in him. Because if they get 90% of what he was 2014-2015, then they're getting an all-star back. Uh, but... I think most Indians fans, or at least Indians fans who are heavily involved in Let's Go Tribe, know well enough to know, like, they might just be getting, like, 
an average guy back. Uh, so he's who I'm watching, and the, the early returns have not been super encouraging. So is there any limit, you think, to uh, how average or if we want to get into bad he can be before they don't pick up his option? Like, what is it? I'm trying to look at it now real quick. It's $11 million for next year they could get it, or a $1 million buyout. Like, if he is just it, average, is it worth it? If he's healthy, I, I, I think he'd have to be terrible for them not to pick it up. Um, you know, if, if he gets 500, 600 plate appearances and puts up average numbers, I think they probably pick it up. Um, I don't know. I mean, they've got they've got a lot of plates spinning right now in terms of salary. Uh, you know, there's a lot of guys who are going to be getting raises next year. Uh, there's been talk of maybe still trying to extend Carlos Santana, which I had sort of thought the ship had probably sailed on that possibility, but maybe not. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe if he only is average and they do work out something with Santana and you know, Naquin has a good year and they feel like the outfield's in pretty good shape, then then maybe they wouldn't pick it up. But I, my guess is if he, you know, gets 500 at-bats and has average offense, they end up picking it up. Yeah, I don't think a, like $11 million is not a terrible price for, a, a like, a step above a warm body in the outfield. Which, as long yeah, as he's not terrible, just, that's all you can be. It's not like signing, you know, it's not like a five-year, $55 million extension or anything either. Like, you're... Yeah. You're taking a flyer for one more season in hopes that he gets it put back together a bit more. Yeah, and I, I did notice, like, in a couple of fly balls, he is not ready to run into walls, which is perfectly fine with me. I think the one was the opening day where he was going. He was going about to run into the wall. He just kind of held up and didn't catch it. But if he wants to not blow up his shoulder in the first game back, that is acceptable by me. I'm not going to get on him for that um, for a while, I think. I don't, I don't care about one play in the outfield compared to destroying your shoulder after you've been out for so long. But yeah, his, his overall strikeout rate right now, 27.8%, which is, again, it's a I mean, sample size, I mean, nothing, but that's like double what he usually has. More than double, that's triple compared to some years. So that was one of mine, actually. It's just that he he's not looking great. I agree with you there. Um, I'll go back to a good one, just to lighten the mood a little bit. Abraham Amante, he suddenly learned how to draw walks. <laughs> he never did that in the past. He's been kind of, sort of okay at a lot of things, but drawing walks was never really one of them. He already has four. Um, last year he had eight in 67 games. So I don't know if this is his new approach or not, but it's kind of encouraging to see Abel Monte being able to kind of hit. And on the same tone, I think uh, Austin Jackson's had a couple of nice hits. So maybe the outfield is deeper than we think, even if Brantley isn't 100%. I mean, neither of those guys are going to be replacing Brantley when he's 100%. But the fact that neither of them are completely terrible, I think is pretty good for the Indians outfield situation, even if Naquin is... He looks good too. I mean, I don't. They just weren't attacking him the way I normally would. But Tyler Naquin doesn't look horrible either. So, just I guess in general, I made this one about Abel Monte, but I'm talking myself into just making it the fact that the outfield is not a dumpster fire whatsoever. I thought it was better than expected last year, and I think it'll be even better than expected this year. Well, they got they got a lot of options anyway. They can hopefully get two or three guys to pan out pretty well from the group, and you know, Lonnie should be back sometime this week to you know another body in the mix. Uh, you know, you mentioned Almani's four walks. Uh, Jan Gomes with three walks. That's like a, yeah. a strong month of, of bases on balls for Jan. So <laughs> Poor Jan. Maybe we should be blaming Texas and Arizona's pitching staffs. I don't know. But, yeah. yeah so, I feel like we're months. early enough in the season where we can say they just faced a couple bad staffs. But still, I mean, Jan Gomes drawing any kind of walks is encouraging. <laughs> I mean, they, and they face some good pitchers in there. You know, I mean, Darvish, Hamels, Granke, that's, that's three legitimately very good pitchers. Yeah, it is, for sure. 
Are you saying Shelby Miller is not one of the legitimately good pitchers, Jason? <laughs> that is a very long, high pitch noise. <laughs> it's just my I'm gonna stall for time while I hope someone changes the subject. Well, how how do you, you know how do you think it's gonna compare? No, it's definitely gonna be Dane's response. I was gonna say, do you think they're gonna feel worse about trading Trevor Bauer away and ending up with nothing? In the end, or trading Dansby Swanson for Miller, but that's got to be Miller, the Miller trade, right? Yeah, yeah that's not even. Yeah. It was kind of close yeah. in my head at first, but no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, not that Bauer doesn't have any value, but like giving away a number four starter isn't like some travesty. Swanson, I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe he'll be less than a number four starter, but he's got the potential to be a much, much, much bigger mistake than than Bauer. So, what else you got, Jason? Um, I don't know. You know, they 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 beat the Rangers three times in a row and look like the best team in the American League. Then they got swept by the Diamondbacks. It's it's early season. You're riding the roller coaster. Every game has more significance mentally than it should, even when you know it shouldn't. So, uh, you know, I'd be glad to get some games, get them playing again tomorrow. The home opener should be big. Uh. Hopefully beat up on the White Sox. And they can lose all their games to National League opponents during the regular season. It's just in the postseason they need to beat National League team. Mm-hmm. Just one National League team, that's it. <laughs> yes, yeah. team. Yeah. So the only thing that I had is just the um, the sudden emergence and the sudden recognition of Francisco Lindor. Like, there were a bunch of, like, ESPN's exact wording was, like, he's baseball's next big thing. And it feels like they were all in the works for a while. And then he hit that grand slam. I'm like, oh, sure, we got to get these out, finish them up, <laughs> tie them into that grand slam. Because that was incredible. It, it's maybe just a narrative thing, the fact that he had an error. And then he homered and he just looked pissed going around the bases. And then he hit that grand slam and he was completely fired up. But, I mean, for an April game, that's one of the most exciting. That's the most excited I've been in an April game in a long time, I think. Um, and it's just incredible how much he's getting recognized. It, it was through the WBC too, but now that the regular season started, now that he's done some kind of heroic thing, I'm really excited to see what he does this season. More than just how he contributes to Indians' wins, and also how he contributes to like growing baseball and being the face of the sport that's not just a boring Mike Trout. Yeah, no, I mean the, the grand slam was awesome. I said a week ago when I was slammed for saying he would <laughs> finish not in the top awful the MVP vote. Uh, you know, I said I didn't think he could win the MVP just because I don't think he has the kind of profile that wins it. Uh, but if he hits three home runs a week, yeah, he, he'll win the MVP. <laughs> Do you think he has the profile yet? Or just like the recognition and like he's there? Yes. Just recognition. What I mean by pro- profile is more he just like someone mentioned Pedroia, which is like a reasonable comparison. But Pedroia won the MVP in a really down year for the MVP race. If you go back and look at Grady Sizemore actually, I think should have won the MVP that year. Um, rest in peace. But uh, <laughs> I just don't think it's the kind of season that 2008 Dustin Pedroia will win the MVP this year. Uh, I don't know. I could be wrong, but I feel like if you look at position players, they tend to fit into you know, one of a couple buckets and, but again, you know, if he hits 25 home runs, that changes things. You know, I'm thinking, you know, yeah. of the season he had last year with maybe just kind of some fringe improvements. You know, he could be, you know, when you look at something like War, he could be like a viable option. But I feel like in terms of the actual voting, a guy with that 
body of work just tends not to win. But you add, you know, a dozen home runs and, and that, that changes the calculus. Yeah, I think you were the only one who defended my pick of Carlos Correa. I thought that was like that was MVP. That's a really solid like if you're a shortstop who hits home runs, you're gonna get votes. And then I think was it just it was you or somebody else who was the only one who was on my side. Everyone was like, "Where is he coming no, from? Well, He's not good." Like, what the? I heck? had to run early last week because my daughter was was flipping out. Uh, <laughs> As they do. But no, so before I get, I, I also picked Correa, so I was totally with you yeah. on that. It was someone else earlier in the podcast. I can't remember which of the guys was, but Correa came up and they were like you know, scoffing at the idea of him being like a top 10 MVP finisher. And yeah. I was like, well, what did he do last year? It's like, look how young he is. Look at what he did, you know, two years ago. Like, he's got a ton of potential. Yep. And shortstop is just a stacked position right now around baseball. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's them. There's Bogerts. There's... Why am I blanking? Corey Steven. Corey Steven. Machado, if you count him as a shortstop, yeah. Between the two, but if he sticks at shortstop eventually and... Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a ton of guys. I mean, it's, you know, who odds are there's not going to play out quite as impressively, but I feel like, you know, you got to go back to, you know, A-Rod, Jeter, and, and Nomar to kind of find a time, and there's more than three of them right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's let's move on uh, to something I think people want addressed in a way. Um, how worried are you at all about the uh, starting rotation? So Corey Kluber, first start of the season, he had a blister. Uh, he was just working his way through it, you know, no big deal. He just sat down 10 straight batters. He didn't have a great outing altogether. Uh, second outing, apparently he's working through a bad back. He also didn't have a great outing. Uh, to combine the starting rotation is a 6.15 ERA. They've given up seven home runs in these six games. The only one who had really kind of a passable start was Carlos Carrasco, and then he was pulled, of course, because he's working back from an injury. But are you legit legitimately concerned about this pitching staff yet or way too early? No, no. no way, <laughs> way, 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 way too early. To the extent that I have a concern, it's, Corey Kluber having a blister and some back soreness. Like, the team's ace having multiple potential health issues is concerning to me. The numbers aren't concerning to me at all. Um, the other thing I would add, though, uh, I mean, I think it's a great rotation, but I, I feel like a lot of times Indians fans talk about the team having three aces. To me, Danny Salazar's not in the same class as Kluber or Carrasco. I know his numbers were really impressive for, like, half of last season, um, and I think he's a good number three starter, um, but I don't buy into the idea that, you know, he's an ace. Um, and so to me, uh, you know, what might feel like, oh, something's wrong with Danny Salazar, he's off. The bar is a little different for me than I think it is for some Indians fans. Not that I want to see him giving up, you know, four runs, five runs, whatever it was, um, but to me, if he's not pitching like a Cy Young candidate, that doesn't mean there's something off about him. That's, I mean, I think he's a number three. He's a good number three starter. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't. I don't know. Other than health, I don't know how anyone can convince themselves that something's really wrong after six games, mm -hmm. after one start for all but Kluber. You have to really be trying to get yourself down about the season, I think. <laughs> and on Salazar, um, I think what we saw in his last start: nine strikeouts, five walks. That's that's pretty much what you're getting out of Danny Salazar. Sometimes luck will go better, and then he'll have a bunch of really good starts. Sometimes it'll go worse, and then he'll give a bunch of runs. But a lot of strikeouts, a lot of walks. I think we just have to live with that at this point. If he can work himself yeah. out of jams with strikeouts, he'll be good. If he can't, he's not going to be good. But I think it's, it's. I don't know if I disagree with not calling him the third ace. If we can say he's like a third ace and not like an ace on another team, but 
three really good pitches, I think, is enough for me to to qualify him in that little statement. But yeah, I agree, he's not like he's not Corey Kluber or Carlos Grasco, and I don't think he'll ever be. But he's a step above like Trevor Bauer and Josh Tomlin and even Mike Clevenger. If yeah, he comes up. I think he's the clear number three in the team, and yeah. he's better than the average major league number three starter. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, that's the Indians' rotation top to bottom. Kluber's better than the average number one. Carrasco's better than the average number two. Salazar, you know, all the way through Bauer and Tomlin, like, they're all better than the average for their rotation spot, which is why it's such a good rotation. Ooh, I like that. Uh, is that better or worse than having, like, a one or two, or, like, a one and a two that are just leagues better than their ones and twos, but kind of like a forest fire in the back? I think in the regular season, like, top to bottom strength, because – you're not skipping anyone's turn for the most part. You know, in the postseason, you can shorten things up, and having like two, you know, super duper studs is, is maybe a little more valuable. Although I do think Carrasco, uh, you know, has the potential to be a legitimate, you know, considered a legitimate ace. And so the Indians might have, you know, they've got probably a top, off the top of my head, like top five pair at the top, and then really good. So they kind of have the best of both worlds, I think. Yeah, for sure. They, they do have that one and two that are way ahead, and then there's a bunch that are just good enough. Um, so moving on, uh, let's talk about a player that I think we both like, and I think a lot of player or a lot of fans are coming around to if they haven't yet. There's no reason not to really. Is Carlos Santana? Uh, he he was getting ready in spring training to play some outfield. We assumed it would be for interleague play, and now that we're in interleague play really early, it did happen. He played in the right field. From what I can remember, just going on memory, he had the one dive uh, that was really hard to catch. Maybe if he was a little faster, he would have got it. And then he had another one where uh, he could have dove and maybe got it, but he made the smart decision to stay back and get it. Kind of bobbled it. He still held the run at first, so I think that was fine. But overall, I think he was fine in right field. Um, before we get on to talking about his contract, how do you feel about him as a right fielder? <laughs> in the short term, and I mean, is there any chance that impacts what happens in the free agency with him? Yeah, I mean, I... I did not expect to see him out there all three games of interleague. I said, you know, last week I thought we'd see him out there one or two games every interleague series, and you know, and that would give him half a dozen or so games. Um, yeah, I mean, Francona clearly is more committed to to the idea. Um, it'll be interesting to see if we see him in an American League park out there at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he. I don't think he's ever going to be probably even an average defensive outfielder. But he should have a good arm uh, for the position, and you know he's more athletic, I think, than he maybe looks at first glance to a lot of people. Um, and he's got a I think he can too. Be, yeah, exactly. So I, I think he can have a plus arm. He's going to be, you know, a negative on range in terms of routes and stuff like that. I don't know. I, I don't know what what I'd be fascinated to see. You know, how many players in their 30s have gone out to the outfield for the first time? and developed a good range out there. I suspect we're going to see some bad routes from him. And, you know, the dive that you mentioned, someone else might have caught the ball. There was no way he was going to catch that ball. Um, And I think knowing that, like knowing your own limitations and not diving for balls you have no chance of catching is that I think he'll pick up on with some experience. But, yeah, to me, I don't think – I still don't think we're going to see a ton of him out there this year. But getting into the contract stuff, if they do extend him – um, you know, the, the possibility that you've got another position he might be able to play certainly makes, you know, an extension for him, I think, a more appealing possibility. Yeah, and he did, um, it is worth noting that he changed, I guess it's probably worth noting that he changed agents this offseason 
Um, I don't know if that's usually a signal, like they want to go somewhere else. They're not happy with what they have, but he's in the last year of a five-year, $21 million deal. I'm sure he will get way more than that. Maybe not the ridiculous amount that I've seen some people throw around, but he's going to be pretty valuable, I think. Um, I've, I was kind of on the boat that they're not going to tie up that much money between Edwin and Carlos, but if they can at least like keep him at first base DH and then hide him in the outfield once in a while, because I think they can do that. I would rather have somebody who can't run great routes and has a great arm hidden in the outfield than the other way around. Because even if you run great routes, if you get the ball and you can't, like if you just noodle arm it in, I would rather have like Santana out there who can't run great arms, but if he gets it, he can hold runners, uh, even if he gets there a little late. So yeah, I think they will. I don't know. I want them to extend them, but I still don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, that's where I'm at too. I love, yeah. I mean... And I'm aware of his flaws as a player, but I love Santana. Uh, I've spent so much time and energy <laughs> defending him to people that he feels like family. So I would love <laughs> him to stick around beyond just this season. But I, yeah, I don't think it's going to happen either. Yeah, he's he's just been so um, like polarizing, I guess. But it's hard to to realize that he's been really consistent. Like he's never a fantastic player, but he's always like a two or three win player. And he'd be higher if he'd play defense, but. He's really great on offense every single year, so that, that's valuable. I still don't know where yeah, how the Indians going to. With the exception of 2015, right. his 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 you know his overall value as a hitter has been really really consistent. You know, with an OPS plus in like the 120s pretty much every year. Uh, yeah, on the whole, he's been the team's best offensive player uh, this decade, and I feel like it's weird for a guy to be on a team for you know this is his eighth season be the team's best offensive player over that span and get so little support relative to like seemingly every other regular on the team. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's just cause he drew walks and people don't like walks. They wanted, he hit like enough home runs to think you should hit 30, but he never hit 30 and then it happened. So it's interesting. Um, I'll be, I'll be no matter where he signs, I'd like to see the contract he gets this off season. Um, so soon, in a minute here, we're going to go to uh, Josh Nelson. We'll talk about some some White Sox. We'll preview it. But before that, we have something very important here. We need to draw a sand in the line. A sand in the line. A line in the sand on instant replay. Because last night, it was ridiculous. Well, I guess two nights ago for listening in the morning. But four replays, one in, in one inning on one play. Um, who was it that was going to first? I can't remember now. But I think it was Lindor. Somebody hit. They barely made it to they get, the ball went to second. He stepped off the base. He threw it to first. It wasn't in time. There were like four different ways it was reviewed. It took way too long. Um, I feel like in general, I'm seeing more and more fans who were all on the do whatever it takes to get it right bandwagon, switching to the this is taking way too damn long bandwagon. I don't know if that's led by like Manfred's repeated declarations that baseball needs to speed up and he's just kind of getting in everybody's head, but I don't know. Where do you feel about replay? And especially based off what happened last night, which is, it's a rarity, but it does happen. It drags games down and it's yeah, really boring I'm in, to watch. I'm the group you just described when they expanded replay for more than just home runs. I was happy about it. I never liked the manager challenge system. I feel like there's, it should be implemented in a way that doesn't involve the teams, uh, you know, the managers, but the idea of getting things right is, of course, I think, uh, you know, admirable and ideal. Uh, but that half inning took half an hour, like literally half yeah. an hour for half an inning of baseball in which not all that much actually happened. 
And like, that's not compelling. It's not exciting. It's not interesting. Uh, yeah, could you and, imagine you know, sitting down with like a first time baseball fan and just watching that with them and that happens and trying to explain it away? Like, you know, complain about football that like, yeah, the game takes over three hours and there's like 12 minutes of actual action. Like there are games when baseball has that same feel to it. Like it just, I, I think first of all, the manager should have to challenge almost instantaneously. Like no one should be checking things out on a monitor to decide, like it should be 10 seconds mm -hmm. to decide if you're going to challenge or not. And then to me, the second the umpire has the headphones on 60 seconds. And if they can't decide to overrule it within 60 seconds, then they stop looking, they stop considering it. Whatever the original call was just stands like anything longer than that. It must have been awfully close, and we can survive if technically things were wrong. The other thing I hate is, and it was obvious that eventually stuff like this would happen, you know, the unintended consequences of now every stolen base is like the Zapruder film. It's like we're going to go frame by frame <laughs> and see yeah. for one twenty-fourth of a second, maybe none of his body was on the bag. It's the same thing. It's like that's... That's against the, the spirit of replay, basically has been taken to a ridiculous place. And yeah, like I'm at this point feeling more like I'd be fine going back to just home runs only because the games are taking forever right now. And I know a lot of people are like, well, that's baseball. It's slow and it's just more baseball, but it's not more baseball. It's just more time to get through the same amount of baseball. Extra innings is more baseball. And I love extra innings, but having to wait five minutes between pitches, that's not more baseball. That's, that's that's more nothing in between baseball, uh, and I want less nothing between baseball, not more of it. Yeah, I think you touched on the biggest point is that it was what like ten fifteen minutes and almost nothing changed. Like if it's a home run, that that can change a lot. But this was, I believe again, I should have looked it up before. But if they didn't review it and get the right call, I think they had was it a double player? Was he ruled safe at first anyway? Either way, it's like an extra out or two and then the, the game resumes and the Indians still lose either way. Right. And then that was the first one. Away. So they called him out and it was just a runner on first. The review was no, it should be first and second. But then it was, well, wait, was the oh, slide make it to third? Yeah. So then it was like, well, wait, would he have made it to third base on the bad throw? And it was all just like, again, it went on and on and on. And at some point, the amount of time it takes isn't worth the potential change, I don't think. Right, absolutely. So we are going to take a quick break here now. Um, we're going to preview the White Sox. They're coming up soon. Uh, they are very much a rebuilding team <laughs> after this offseason. But there's a few prospects to watch, a few pitching. We're going to have Josh Nelson, uh, the host of the great Southside Sox podcast, one of my favorite non-general like general baseball, non-Indians podcasts. Uh, if anything, just because their intro music is fantastic. You've never listened to it. Anyway. We'll talk to Josh in a minute. As for me and Jason, we'll be right back. And we are back now uh, to talk about the Chicago White Sox, a team in unfamiliar territory with a full-on rebuild, including the trades of Chris Sale and Adam Eaton this offseason for massive returns. Uh, they head to Cleveland this week for the Tribe Home Opener. Uh, while the Indians are coming off a series of devastating losses to the Arizona Diamondbacks, the White Sox hit a game below 500 as they continue their early season gauntlet through the AL Central against the Tigers and the Twins. Uh, to preview this, uh, let's be honest, not so pivotal series. I mean, it's April, <laughs> but it is a series to preview. We are joined uh, by the great host of the Southside Talks podcast, Josh Nelson. Josh, thanks for joining us. 
Yeah, absolutely, Matt. Thanks for having me. I mean, I, I guess it's been rough to watch. I don't think. I don't know. Let's let's talk about before we get into the actual series. Just the the process of being a, a White Sox fan through a rebuild. Indians fans, we understand it plenty. Uh, we understand the failed ones <laughs> quite a few times, although the recent years have been pretty good to us. But so, what is just the general um, the feeling of White Sox fans? Are you are you guys glad that you're going through? You just kind of bit the bullet and going through rebuild. Or did you want to reload a couple more times and try to go for it again? I'm glad they went. They picked a direction, and in my frustration during last season. When everything fell apart for the White Sox, I mean, this is a team that started 23 and 10. And when you are 23 and 10, all you have to do is just be 500 the rest of the way and you are in playoff contention. That's all you got to do. Well, they turned around from 23 and 10 and went 10 and 26 the next 36 (laughs) games. And they found themselves three games below 500 after being 13 games above 500. And in August, I was calling for a rebuild because what's the point? I mean, there's just not a lot of depth in the minors for the White Sox at that time late last season where you could say, is there help coming? No, there's no help coming. It's just Tim Anderson, and it's a lot of wishing and praying and hoping that Jerry Reinsdorf suddenly becomes like Mike Illich and you spend in free agency, but then you look to the free agency class. We all saw how that unfolded, and there really wasn't anyone – that the White Sox could assign that would have solved all of their problems. So I'm happy that they did pick a direction. What's the interesting thing, though, is that when teams decide to rebuild, they generally have a new front office to do that rebuild. That's not the case with the White Sox. Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn, Rick Hahn being the general manager, uh, they have been longtime employees for the White Sox, stretching, at least for Rick Hahn, back to 2003 at least, And Kenny Williams has been part of the organization, it seems like, forever. And now you're going to have the same guys in charge going through a rebuild. A little interesting. Um, The managing editor for SouthsideSox.com and my co-host of the podcast, Jim Margulis, he wanted the White Sox to give it one more shot just to see what the difference was between a decent roster under Rick Renteria's manager compared to Robin Ventura. Obviously, we didn't get that. And after the winter meetings, it was very exciting on who the White Sox got back for Chris Sale and Adam Eaton. All of a sudden, the top 10 prospects is completely different for the White Sox. And you have guys that you can dream on in the future. Then it just stopped. And the White Sox haven't done much of anything since December with the rebuild. And it just brings back familiar feelings where the White Sox have just really done half measured off seasons trying to build a winning team. And the greatest fear is that they have to go through this rebuild. And Rick Hahn's saying the right things that the White Sox are closer to the beginning of the rebuild than towards the end. And he's absolutely right. Uh, it's just with White Sox fans, we want this team to completely be gutted out. We'd like to see Jose Katana be traded to get more prospects. We like to see someone trade for Todd Frazier, Nate Jones, David Robertson, give us all the prospects, start, you know, completely gut this out, and let's have a better understanding of who's going to help the White Sox in the future. So right now with White Sox fans, we're kind of on the edge of our seat waiting what the next move is going to be. And for me at least, growing a little impatient on when that's going to happen. Yeah, interesting. I can't. I was surprised they didn't just trade Quintana in the offseason. I guess the, the thinking is now just wait until the deadline until somebody's really desperate to grab him, or that seems like it can well, go I, real bad real quick. Well, I think they honestly did try to trade Quintana. And at Sox Fest, which is the big fan convention for the Chicago White Sox, 
Rick Hahn had some transparency for once and did say there was a deal that died at the ownership level on Christmas Eve. What that means is that Rick Hahn agreed to it and the other team or teams also agreed to the deal, but one of the owners said no. Who was that player? We're not sure. Based on the timing, it appears to be that if you just read the tea leaves and go off by the rumors, it was possibly a deal between the New York Yankees and the Chicago White Sox for Jose Catana. I think that's just a guess because John Heyman and all the New York beat reporters, they were talking quite a bit about trade rumors surrounding the Yankees and Jose Catana as far as that timetable. It could have been anyone, in all honesty. We, we have no clue. We just know that a deal died on Christmas Eve. And Rick Hahn told beat reporters on opening day, he hasn't had a serious offer in months to entertain to make a trade. So it's not like you know we read these rumors of, oh, maybe the Houston Astros are in Jose Katana, maybe the Colorado Rockies. I just think this is just columnists and baseball people needing to write something and they decide to pick a name out of the hat. Oh, it's Jose Gatana. Let me write up a possible trade scenario. And in all honesty, I mean, there is some smoke, but the fire is not hot. And the concern is, is this, Matt. The trade deadline is arbitrary. I think the White Sox need to move Jose Gatana sooner than later. However, it appears that what Rick Hahn calls patience, I worry, is stubbornness is that if a team does not meet the White Sox asking price for Jose Gatana this season, they won't trade him. They will wait until next offseason to move him, and they're willing to do that. And that has me concerned because, logically, doesn't that mean Jose Gatana's asking price goes down if you keep him another year? Uh, to me, it does. And me, I mean, maybe that makes it easier for other teams to acquire him next offseason. But with the way that the Houston Astros starting pitching has gone, even though Colin McHugh is hurt, I'm a little disgruntled by that. Uh, the New York Yankees with Gary Sanchez being out for a month and they're struggling out of the gate. That has me concerned. I just don't know how many teams realistically, A, have the trade pieces to acquire Jose Gatana, and B, are going to be in a position where they could benefit mostly uh, at most with Jose Quintana. I still think right now it's the Houston Astros. They could really use Quintana to make sure that they could win the American League West and get themselves back into the postseason. But if it's just the Houston Astros bidding with the Chicago White Sox, this could drag on for a long time, man. Well, yeah, I, th I think the I – didn't, I didn't hear about that, the Christmas Eve one falling through. That would have probably sent Clint Frazier to the White Sox, I would think, right? That would Possibly. Have been scary. I, don't, I don't like Possibly. that. Possibly. <laughs> well, like I said, I mean, it's it, not as it, bad as them being on the Yankees, I think. But. Well, it could be Clint <laughs> Frazier. It, I think the White Sox are in love with Glaber Torres, mm -hmm. and they would love to have Torres involved. I just don't see the Yankees doing that. So then, yeah, if you drop it down one notch, it's Clint Frazier. And that's an area where the White Sox desperately need help, Matt, is mm -hmm. the outfield. Uh, they are incredibly weak in the outfield. There's very little depth within the system. And as a matter of fact, their best young outfielders are in high A. I wouldn't count anyone in double A or triple A helping the White Sox in the outfield situation. So if they do trade Jose Gatana, the White Sox front office, they know what they want from teams. That's the other thing, too. The front office for the White Sox has specifically told teams, 
here is the package of players we want for Jose Catana. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot of negotiating back and forth on that. The White Sox know exactly what they want, and they have pretty much given each team this is the price tag to get Jose Catana. And maybe that's why the White Sox haven't heard anything in a few months from teams acquiring on Jose Catana. So of the players you guys did get, um, the Mancadas, the Giolitos, are those, is one of them going to be the ones that think break out, or is it going to be someone who, I don't want to call underrated, but um, lesser known than those two, like maybe Michael Kopech? Co- Kopech? I think Kopech. Kopech. Yeah, Kopech, there you go. <laughs> really, came, I saw comparisons to Thor, though I think that's just the hair, but do you think it's going to be someone <laughs> like him, or is it going to be Moncada, who's already in the majors, or Giolito, uh, who was, it's still crazy to me they got the top overall pitching prospect for Adam Eaton, but... Who do you think has the most potential to be the one that that bursts out and makes the trades worth it from the ones you guys did so far? You and Mikata. Right now, Mikata has had a terrific start to AAA. Matt, I'm already looking at May when Mikata will be called up by the Chicago White Sox. He is just excelling offensively against AAA pitching. He had another great night tonight where he's one for three with a second home run of the season and he walked twice. And if he continues to keep hitting and ranking in AAA, I mean, it just doesn't make sense for the White Sox, in all honesty, to waste healthy innings for Mikata to dominate AAA. They need to know what Mikata can do in the major league level. And I think, uh, you know, thanks to Twitter, baseball Twitter, to Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. Shout out to Daniel, uh, (laughs) who figured it out for me. The earliest the White Sox could call Mikata up to get that extra year, let's call it the Chris Bryant method, is May 14th. And I think the White Sox are going to do that. And a lot of fans are saying, well, let's wait until the All-Star break for Super 2. I don't think the White Sox care about Super 2 status with Yohan Mikata, in all honesty. I think as soon as they can get an extra year of control of Mikata, they're going to take advantage of that. And I do think they'll call up Mikata in late May. What does make it dramatic and exciting is Memorial Day, the Boston Red Sox come into town. And how fitting would it be if Mikata is called up and he gets an opportunity to face Chris Sale? That would be awesome. That would be a great baseball television. Uh, Speaking of Lucas Giolito, there is some concerns with Lucas Giolito. One, his velocity is way off. For all those people that said Lucas Giolito has a mid-90s fastball, I haven't seen it once. I think the fastest I've seen him throw it is 93 in spring training. Uh, Lucas Giolito, in his first start with the Charlotte Knights, mostly sat at 90 miles per hour on the television gun. Uh, and at the end of his start, which he only made it to the fifth inning, he was throwing 87. The velocity's not there, and he's having to learn how to pitch backwards, which isn't the end of the world. And I think the comparison that I, that I draw up is Gavin Floyd for Lucas Giolito. Gavin Floyd was very good for the White Sox for five seasons from 2008 to 2012. But Lucas Giolito was thought to be a bona fide ace. And I I just don't see it at the moment. So who are some players that could step up and break out? You mentioned Michael Kopech. He faced 13 batters at his first start in double A. He struck out 10 of them. Uh, I'm sorry, he had 13 outs. 10 of them were strikeouts uh, as he pitched four in a third inning. And Dane Dunning who is a first-round pick for the Washington Nationals. He was the third player, including the Adam Ean deal. And I don't know if it was a throwaway because the White Sox were going to – they were seriously thinking about drafting Dane Dunning with a 26 pick in the 2016 draft. Uh, but the, the Nationals traded their first-round pick to the White Sox 
and part of the Adam Eaton deal. And Dane Dunning has looked terrific in single A, and he comes from the University of Florida. And for those that pay attention to college baseball, Florida is just a hotbed for starting pitching. And if Dunning continues to progress and he continues to develop, the White Sox might have found a diamond in the rough in Dane Dunning who could help in the major league level, or they could use him as a trade chip and move him to another team when they're ready to buy and add players and be ready to contend for the postseason. So let's talk about the, the current time now. Uh, White Sox will compete eventually, but right now they're getting ready to face the Indians. Um, matchup starts tomorrow or today, depending on when you listen to the podcast. Let's talk James Shields, the first matchup here. Um, <laughs> I have to imagine <laughs> that that didn't feel good at the time, and I can't imagine the trade feel goods now. So, I mean, is there any hope left for any kind of contribution you get to James Shield? Is he just hoping you basically flip him now for something at this point? I, not really. I don't think any team's going to take on James Shields, to be honest. And having James Shields, if James Shields can pitch six innings every start, that has some value to the White Sox, especially with Carlos Rodon being on the mend right now and being on the disabled list. The White Sox need to get through these innings. And if big game James or the veteran James Shields can step up and eat <laughs> innings, that has some value. I, I Even if he's giving up four or five runs every start through six innings, whatever, you know, wins and losses are not all that important this year for the White Sox. It's key development for key players. That's most important for the White Sox this season. But as you know, Matt, it is a marathon of a year, and you got to get through it. And the White Sox, I think, would like to buy time before calling up some of their young starting pitching in AAA. And they are stocked. I mean, they got Lucas Giolito, they got Ronaldo Lopez, and they got Carson Fulmer. But be, instead of just tapping into that well, it'd be nice if the guys that are currently with Chicago right now can eat up most of those innings. And James Shields, I mean, he only gave up one run in his first start of the year, which he won that game, but he walked five hitters. And let's be real, I, that's, just, that's just not going to work. And that one run, of course, was a home run. Uh, and if you're walking guys and you're subject to giving up the gopher, it could be a really ugly start on Tuesday for James Shields against the Cleveland Indians because I'm sure it's going to be rocking in Cleveland with it being the home opener for the Indians. And I, I'm not too optimistic on what James Shields could do. If if Shields can get through the sixth inning, I would consider that a victory. <laughs> so uh, the White Sox, they have a pitcher who I, I've barely ever heard of Miguel Gonzalez, but I was looking at him. He looks eerily similar to Josh Tomlin. They're both pitchers that they have one yeah. pitch who – it kind of works. Gonzalez had a split finger by the looks of it. Uh, Tomlin has his curveball. They're both in the zone a lot. They both give up a lot of home runs. I guess the big difference is that Tomlin walks fewer batters, but what's the overall feeling on Gonzalez? Because Indians fans, we kind of accept that Tomlin is is a decent 4-5 or five starter, but Gonzalez hasn't been in Chicago for very long. So is there much hope that he can pan out into more than just kind of what he is now? No, not really, but what he is now is acceptable. Miguel Gonzalez was with the Baltimore Orioles, and he had a, a good season for them before the Orioles just cut him for no apparent reason. I mean, the White Sox didn't even have to give up anything for Miguel, Miguel Gonzalez. And if you follow the Baltimore Orioles at all, it was a head-scratcher because the Orioles are always desperate for starting pitching. And just looking as far as that you know, baseball reference, I mean, Miguel Gonzalez surprised me last year in how well he pitched for the White Sox. Uh, in 2013, Gonzalez was 11 and 8 with a 3.78 ERA, and in 2014, he was 10 and 9 with a 3.23 ERA. 
with the Baltimore Orioles, and uh, he was worth, uh, as far as from 2012 to 2014, he was worth 7.2 wins above replacement for Baltimore. So he had three good seasons for the Baltimore Orioles, and then they just cut him, and then the White Sox picked him up, and he was able to make 23 starts for them last year, which was key. And, and Gonzalez doesn't strike out a whole lot of guys. He just doesn't. He's got a very low strikeout rate. Uh, for his career, he hovers in the mid-six. Uh, last year, was 6.3 strikeouts per nine innings, uh, which isn't terribly high. He was able to limit home runs, though, last year. He was only giving up seven-tenths of a home run per nine innings, which is half of what he gave up in 2015 with Baltimore. He gave up one and a half home runs per nine innings. And, and that's pretty key for Gonzalez because if you keep the ball in the ballpark and he does throw the two-seamer, as you mentioned, and with his breaking pitch, he can do, induce a lot of ground balls. If you keep the ball on the ground, it'll give the White Sox a chance. And in this series, that is the game, Gonzalez versus Tomlin, whereas a White Sox fan... I am most confident that the White Sox could steal a game from Cleveland in this series uh, just because in his first start, Gonzalez did pitch well for the White Sox. Six innings, only allowed two runs on seven hits, striking out six and walking two. Yeah, we'll see if the Indians have a glaring weakness right now. It's that they're hitting everything on the ground. So that seems like a bad combination for Cleveland. <laughs> so our last question, Josh. Uh, this is one I kind of want to ask all of our people this year. Let's go in a little fantasy lane here. Let's say... Uh, for one reason or another, uh, you, Josh Nelson, have been targeted by the Indians. You're in the locker room. We need to know, how do we beat the White Sox? I'm assuming your question is probably easier than some <laughs> other teams. But give the Indians the scouting report on on how they can just dismantle the White Sox over this home opener series. Don't you guys Betray already have team. that? <laughs> yeah. Don't you already have that? <laughs> I swear, like two years ago, the Indians were like 17-2 and two against the White Sox. I should be asking you that question because I think the <laughs> Indians have a much better idea on how to beat the White Sox and the White Sox do on how to beat themselves. You know, what you have to focus on in this series, there's really only three hitters that are actually hitting for power, and that's that's Giovanni Soto, Avisil Garcia, and Matt Davidson. Uh, <laughs> which, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, the murder murder's real right there. I tell you what. You know, and I think – Indians fans know very well Jose Abreu is annoying to them, and oh, Jose yes. Abreu seems to have always a good series against Cleveland. And it's all about really focusing and not giving in to the top of the order. Tyler Saladino is the leadoff hitter starting to grow on me because he has a different approach when he's the leadoff hitter. He's willing to take his walks, and he's willing to take a lot of pitches. So far in just five games, uh, Saladino has made four starts. He has four walks to just one strikeout. So he's putting the ball in play, and he's willing to take his walks, and he does have four hits on the season and 13 at-bats. And if he continues to get on base and Jose Abreu comes up, then the Indians could be in trouble if Abreu connects and he does some damage because that will be the way the White Sox win this win any game against Cleveland. But if the Indian starters can hyper-focus and they can keep Tyler Saladino off base and even Melky Cabrera – Tim Anderson's having somewhat of a rough start in the first week, uh, so I wouldn't worry too much about him at the moment until he starts heating up. But if, if the Indian starters can shut down Tyler Saladino and Melky Cabrera, in my opinion, Matt, the only damage that Jose Bray could do is hit solo home runs, and the Indians <laughs> can easily overcome that. 
because uh, the bottom half of the lineup, you'll laugh on who the White Sox will trot out there. There'll be some guys that you have no idea who they are. Uh, and I think some <laughs> Indians fans are going to have that feeling of who in the world is Omar Norvayas? Who is Jacob May? Holy crap, Cody Ashey is still in the major <laughs> leagues. Uh, those are going to be some of the things you'll hear from Indians fans uh, during this series. So if you're looking for the kryptonite for the White Sox, I mean, offensively, focus on Tyler Saladito and Melky Cabrera. Make sure they don't get on base because if Jose Abreu continues his terrific outings against the Cleveland Indians, then all he can do is just hit solo home runs, and the Indians should be able to overcome that. I will say, it seems like the Indians pick a new new AL Central team every year. Two years ago, it was the White Sox. Last year, it was the Tigers. Let's just both agree to beat up on the Twins this year. How about we have a little truce? We can, we can sort of split the series with the White Sox. Let's just all beat up the Twins. Be careful of the Twins. <laughs> I know. They're I on too good of a start right now. I don't like it. I kind of like that team. And what is annoying is that outfield is really good defensively. Mm-hmm. Byron Buxton cannot hit at all at the moment. <laughs> but their outfield is so athletic and they cover so much ground that any hard hit ball right now, especially in the gaps in center field, is getting caught. And that's really annoying. And that's what's helping the Twins with their pace right now is run prevention. And if they can continue that, the Twins could surprise this year. So be careful with the Twins. Yeah, exactly. Last year, they were they were weirdly scary to the Indians. I think they were like 500 against the Twins. And the year before, of course, they had the great year. So I don't trust them. I don't like them. Let's just all agree to beat up on them. So, Josh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us. Why don't you let everybody know where they can find you? Yep, absolutely. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at SSS underscore Josh Nelson. And you can follow Southside Sox as well on Twitter at Southside Sox. Thank you again. And like I said, uh, before we came to the break, love the podcast. I always listen to it. It's one of my favorite non-Indians, like non-general baseball. I don't listen to a whole lot of teams specific besides the Indians, but I always check out the Southside Sox. So, Josh, thanks for joining us. Um, Everybody else, we will return soon. We're going to answer your questions that you've submitted throughout the day. So stick around. And we are back. Thank you, Josh, for joining us, previewing the White Sox series. Uh, coming up tomorrow, the home opener again, 4-10, first pitch. Uh, should be a good one. Weather's going to be, I think it's supposed to rain like around the game and not during the game. So as long as we finally avoided that bad weather during the actual opening series is all I want for once. <laughs> so we're going to get right into our uh, social media questions here. Every Monday, uh, we tweet out on Facebook and Twitter. You can follow us at Let's Go Try. We ask questions. Anything you want answered. It can be weird, normal, about baseball, not about baseball. I don't even care anymore. Just whatever you want to know. So our first one from at P Fiends. He wants to know, what is the batting order when Kipnis comes back? So Jason, uh, Jason Kipnis, he, uh, he's rehabbing in Akron right now. Uh, so Jason, what do you think when he comes back, whenever that is? Probably, I would assume, as soon as the 10-day DL is up. So what is the lineup going to look like with Jason in it? Uh, I would go to pretty close to last year's lineup. Uh, I'd have, you know, Santana, then Kipnis, then Lindor to start uh, with Encarnacion in, you know, Napoli's old DH spot. And then so I guess, I mean, the, the, the real change I would be making from what we've seen in the first week is I'd be moving Brantley down from the number three spot to the number five spot and then, you know, pushing Ramirez and the rest of the lineup back one. So that's what I would do. Is I guess I'm dropping Brantley and putting Kipnis back in his old spot. Yeah, that's and Kipnis that's pretty much the answer. Yeah, I think the other half of the answer here is that Yandy Diaz gets sent down, and I am fully on the Yandy hype train. So, as someone who's not completely on and 
driving the train, Jason. Uh, do you think he's staying on when Jason gets back? Or is Yanni going to go back down to AAA for a little bit? Uh, yeah, I guess I think he's going down. And I think what we'll hear is we'd rather he play every day right. than be a bench player right now. Which I think there's some merit to. Um, you know, I think later in the season, you get to a point where it's you want the 25 best players possible on the roster. Um, but yeah, I mean, Diaz has versatility and could play multiple places. You know, you could probably justify, you know, even with everyone else healthy, him still starting a couple games a week. But yeah, I'd rather he play six games a week than, you know, two games with a couple other Know, pinch hitting appearances or something like that. Um, yeah, I, so, so I th- tend to think he'll be sent down. Yeah, I think it's perfectly reasonable. I mean, I've I've kind of grown used to the fact that we need a player like Michael Martinez because he's not developing anything. He can just be there and play when they need him to. Even if it's not great, he can just be a body somewhere. Um, our next one, at Tyler Etchell on Twitter. He wants to know the current tribe player most likely to flex on dudes like Albert Bell. <laughs> So I'm guessing, um, I can't remember who it was, but Albert Bell just ran into somebody coming on the bases and tried to overpower him. And is there any Indians player who does that or any, I can't think of any who would even do that in today's, he'd get destroyed for it. (laughs) If you had to pick an Indians player. They they broke the Albert Bell mold, I think. (laughs) Um, Perhaps intentionally. Yeah. But in terms of just like flexing, uh... I don't know. I could maybe see Edwin flexing. It'd be funny if someone like ironically flexed. If like, <laughs> you know, Lindor's hit three home runs, but he's a pretty as major league baseball players go, he's a pretty skinny guy. It'd be kind of funny to see him flex at someone. You know, he'd have a big ridiculous grin on his face, unlike Albert Bell who was scowling. <laughs> I think everyone would get that it was you know more of a, a tongue in cheek thing. Yeah. Uh, there's no one who's going to do the Albert Bell like legitimately. That that was. He was one of a kind for that. So your Lindor answer, that gives me an idea. I think another one might be Trevor Bauer. He wouldn't be smiling. He'd be frowning, but you know he's joking around. But like if he got a hit and he had an opportunity, maybe he would just to be kind of like like that. I, I could see that happening, Trevor Bauer. But also Lindor, like you said, joking around. A player that might legitimately do it if he makes it to the majors, I think might be, I'm, I'm grabbing out of the minors here, but Nelly Rodriguez. I don't know if you followed him and all, but he has, he's, I don't want to say an ego, but he's an intense dude. He's a big dude. Uh, I could see him doing that, maybe getting himself in trouble. If he can make it to the majors and not have the personality beat out of him like every other player. But I could see him doing that at some point. That's about as close as I can get, though. I can't think of, I mean, can you imagine just a player doing that (laughs) and it'd be tweeted and they'd be suspended and be awful because you can't do that stuff anymore, which is a good thing, I guess. Um, I'm glad we're doing the podcast again because I, I I love I feel like your main baseball thing <laughs> above above even like the enjoyment of like Lindor I mean I guess it goes hand in hand with the enjoyment of Lindor but is the the, the personality thing absolutely yes your, your disdain for Mike I Trout because he cares well. <laughs> Not disdain for Mike Trout, but more disdain for what happened to Bryce Howard. Bryce Howard, Bryce Harper. Um, he was such a fun person. It's just gotten like beaten out of him, and by it's by media and by people on Twitter because you can't do anything fun. You're not allowed. Um, 
I don't not just like Lindor fun. I don't like, think he's being up by media as much as it is other baseball players. I mean, Papelbon choked him for having yeah, too much personal. True. I think it's, <laughs> it's a little bit of everybody, and I hate it. American baseball culture. I mean, you watch yeah. the World Baseball Classic, you watch the Dominican team, the Puerto Rican team, almost any team but the American team, and you see all sorts of personality and stuff like that. But yeah. Ian Kinsler summed it up. Like, here in the United States, we like it boring. I hate it. And it's not like it's an old school thing, really. Like, there were so many big, loud personalities, and like, you got Ricky Hendersons and all kinds of people in the 80s and 90s who are just now really annoying old people who say they were just there for the game. But Back then, they were big, loud personalities, and you can't do it anymore because you're just not allowed. You yeah, have to do it the right way. I think really, like, a brief time in the 70s is really the only time that, like, loud personality was the baseball culture. Like, Ricky Anderson stands out because because he was, like, an exception to the norm. I really I, – I think, you know, the early 70s A's when they all grew mustaches and stuff like that, I think there was a little while where baseball counterculture became baseball culture. But by the end of that decade, it had shifted back. There's always exceptions. I mean, there's exceptions now. There's there's goofballs and zany guys and guys who play with, you know, passion and get away with it. But I think other than about a four-year stretch, stoic, put your head down, put your cleats up has been the dominant baseball culture. <laughs> like I'm even on the train of as much as I, not to get too much into it, but as much as I completely disagree with everything Trevor Bauer says, I am okay with him saying those stupid things and being allowed to. Like, I want players to be people and to know that they're people. And I think it's better for connecting to baseball. And I don't know. I get that some of the things he said is a little much. But I don't know. I like personalities in sports and in everything. So, But, yes, you are absolutely right. <laughs> My disdain for Mike Trout and his stupid weatherman hobby. That's all he's got. I don't care if you're good. Most people can't name what Mike. Or they like couldn't pick Mike Trout out of a lineup, I don't think. We've talked about oh, that yeah, before, yeah, though. It's just a general marketing the, issue. The 50... 50 most popular or 50 best known. I don't remember which it was. One or the other. American athletes or um, athletes in America, not a single one of the top 50 was a baseball player. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy, but then again, it's not. I can understand why. Although I will say I really like their this season on baseball campaign. It's like straightforward. It gets faces out there and it's it's like linking into as as if it was a big, exciting TV show, which I think is good. And it features Tito, which I like. So yeah, that's our show this week. Uh, anything exciting coming up for you, Jason? I know we got some baseball to watch, and finally some baseball to watch. Baseball to watch. My paternity leave has two weeks left, so I'm two weeks away from starting to get the hang of juggling <laughs> a job and a baby. But for now, it's just baby and baseball. It's the way I like it. Yeah, that's way. Love all the the updates on her and the the Indian shirts. You gotta get some more. So <laughs> for everyone listening. Uh, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. We don't have any unique name yet. By the way, we need to get 100 subscribers. If you guys can do that, and then we can get slash Let's Go Tribe. Until then, you just got to search for us. Uh, find us on iTunes, Let's Talk Tribe. Facebook and Twitter, at Let's Go Tribe. Uh, we will talk to you next week. Yeah.